Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. In size and scope, there is nothing bigger in modern campaign politics than a Trump rally. Thousands of people packed into SNHU Arena Thursday, with hundreds more outside, along with a large crowd of protesters. This is a president who inspires strong feelings among supporters and opponents alike. Before the rally, we spoke with the president one-on-one, touching on topics ranging from gun control to voter fraud. He also says he hasn't forgotten his promise to bring New Hampshire's opioid crisis to an end. Uh, Mr. President, thank you so much for taking some time with us. One of the most consistent promises you made on the campaign trail back in 2015 and 16 was to resolve the opioid crisis here in New Hampshire. And uh, your administration working with Congress has provided quite a bit of aid and a lot of help, but the overdoses are still happening. The problem is still here. What more can you pledge to help this state? So it really is, and it's something that's taken place in New Hampshire almost more than any proportionately, almost more Ohio, New Hampshire. Uh, We have really worked hard on the opioid, as you know, tremendous lawsuits going and against the pharmaceutical companies. And we have it down 16, 17%, which is tremendous. That doesn't satisfy anything, but we have it down. The other thing we're trying to do is a non-addictive painkiller. And we're working very hard on that with everybody. The order's out. Get a painkiller that's not so addictive. You know, people go to the hospital, they take like four days of opioids, and all of a sudden they're addicted. So we're working on that, but we're down 17%. As of this moment, in fact, the First Lady is chairing a committee. She's done an incredible job. She she really feels very strongly about it. And then you have the other drug problem in New Hampshire, which are other kinds of drugs. And we're really stopping people now at the border. We're collecting tremendous amounts. And you're doing much better. But we have a lot of very good things coming. Democrats here have been hammering you for two years on this issue over comments that came out in a transcript in which you allegedly referred to New Hampshire as a drug-infested den. Do you feel you owe the people of New Hampshire who might be offended by that an apology? No, because this is what they tell me. I mean, they say, we're drug-infested, sir. We're drug-infested. I don't mean that as a as a knock. I mean, it's a fact. Take a look at what happens. I mean, it's so many people. And for some reason, and I told you this once before, when I come up to New Hampshire, they always consider it their number one problem. And they call it the people, people I love that I know up here so well. You know, I have a lot of friends in New Hampshire. And they say, it's drug infested. And we're really cleaning it out. And the police are doing a great job, too. Healthcare, obviously a big topic. Uh, and it involves the opioid crisis as well. A lot of the Democratic candidates running for president want to expand Medicare either a little or quite a bit. Mm. What's the Trump plan for healthcare coming up? So we have a great plan coming out. It's going to be if we can take back the House, because we're not going to get the Democrats to vote for it because they're doing Medicare for all, which is going to take away your freedom, take away your doctors, take away everything that you should be able to have. And most importantly, it's going to take away, we have 180 million people right now that have private insurance and they love it. And all of that's going to be taken away. It's absolute craziness. It, on, on, you know, I mean, on top of everything else, they're looking at 80, 90, 95% tax because there's no, there's no way they can afford it. But people don't want to go to a hospital to go to a doctor. They don't want to go. They want to have their own doctor, number one. And we went through this with Obamacare, which we got rid of the individual mandate, by the way, which is very important. But we have a great health care plan. If we get the House, we hold the Senate, 
we keep the presidency, we're going to have great health care, much better than Obamacare, at much less cost. Governor Chris Sununu recently vetoed a series of gun bills, among them uh, expanded background checks. You've said recently that you're in favor of meaningful background checks. Can you be more specific to that as include perhaps closing the gun show loophole or involving mental health records? So we're looking at it right now. We're dealing with a lot of Republicans, very strong conservative Republicans, and we're coming up with a plan if we can. Uh, remember this, we have a lot of background checks already. People don't realize that. So within the Constitution, within all of the rights, and we also have to remember one other thing. We have to remember that you have a mental illness problem. That's a tremendous problem. And, you know, it's not the gun that pulls the trigger. It's the person holding the gun. We have to remember mental illness, and we're working on that, including institutions. We used to have institutions. They were closed for budgetary reasons many years ago. Everybody was allowed to go out on the streets. We have a real mental illness problem. We're going to have it taken care of. So we'll be working with the Republicans and ultimately with the Democrats to see if something can be done. I don't know if that's possible, but we're working on it. Right, we want to sneak in two quick questions here. One, voter fraud. You alleged once again 2016 was a problem here. Your appointee to the Electoral Integrity Commission, Bill Gardner, our Secretary of State, found no evidence of widespread voter fraud. But are you concerned of that happening again here in 2016? Uh, I think you have voter fraud all over the country. If you look at California, if you look at so many other states, in California they settled. They had a million people that they found through Judicial Watch. and plenty of other places, too. So we have to stop voter fraud. Voter fraud is a big problem in this country. There's no question about it. And Corey Lewandowski eyeing a Senate run here in New Hampshire. If he runs, will you endorse him? Well, I'll tell you what, he's outstanding. And if he tells me, we will certainly make a decision quickly. But he's a great guy. And if he ran, I think he could really do amazingly well. He's smart. He's tough. He loves New Hampshire. This is where he, you know, it all begins and ends in New Hampshire for him. And he loves our country. So if he runs, I will certainly give it consideration. Mr. President, thank you so much thank for your you time. Thank you very much. All right. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's You Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join You Local. See you there. Since 2015, it's become something of a phenomenon. Republicans who stand in the way of Donald Trump find themselves marginalized and defeated. But while most in that category have either given up or become vocal supporters of the president, others refuse to stay down for the count. One of them is former South Carolina governor and congressman Mark Sanford, who is our guest this morning as he or considers mounting a primary challenge. Governor, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank appreciate you. appreciate your time. So take us through your timeline and your decision-making process as you travel here in New Hampshire. How are you going to figure out if this is feasible for you? Uh, that's the $94 question. That's the reason I'm here. And, you know, this gives me a chance to talk to folks in the Granite State to get a sense of what's important to them, what matters. And I think that one of the things that's most intriguing to me about New Hampshire is the way in which money matters, uh, the way in which economic issues matter. And right now we have a profound problem on that front both with regard to what we stand for as Republicans and with regard to the national bank account. Spending is clearly a huge issue for you. You've always been a, a fiscal conservative. What is it about President Trump's budgetary actions, spending, that has you alarmed? Well, uh, in, in peacetime, we're running uh, numbers we've never seen before. We have the highest debt we've ever had in our country's history. 
uh, we're spending more than we've ever spent before, and we're going to project it to run trillion-plus-dollar deficits over the next 10 years. Again, something that's never happened before in peacetime. This budget deal that was just signed by the president, though he said last time he'd never signed a budget deal like this again, will add two trillion dollars of additional debt over the next 10 years, and it adds a third of a trillion dollars of new spending over the next two years. So, I, I, again, I, I believe that what Milton Friedman said a long time ago, which is the ultimate measure of government is what it spends, is very true. It's certainly not the only measure, but it's a pretty important one because it drives the need for taxes, it drives the need for deficits, it drives the need for borrowing. And I think that, you know, in fairness to folks in New Hampshire, folks here have done an awfully good job of holding things in check, unlike many other states. If you look at the disaster that is occurring in Illinois or California from a state budgetary standpoint. But we need that same discipline in Washington, D.C., and unfortunately we're not seeing it. The president clearly has a lot of support among Republicans. Uh, why are they wrong, in your opinion, to support the president? I, I, you know, I, I think that they like the whole of what they have seen. They wanted somebody who would challenge the system, and he's certainly done that. They wanted somebody who would focus on this porous border we have with Mexico, and he's done that. Uh, they wanted somebody who would make good judicial appointments. He's done that. I mean, so there are a number of things that he's done or attempted to do. We certainly don't have a secure border. There's been a lot of banter back and forth. Ultimately, we haven't had that problem resolved. The judicial appointments have been good. The tax cut was good. I was in the House and voted for it. But spending's been a disaster. And again, I keep going back to if we don't get our arms around that, if we don't have a debate on what that means as Republicans, then what's happening on the Democratic side will prevail. And the, the debate on the Democratic side is simply more versus more without worrying about who pays for it. And that'll be me and you. You mentioned the border. Why is 25 billion taxpayer dollars for a wall a sound investment? It's a sound investment because it's part of a larger strategy. I mean, the whole thing is so overblown on both sides. Ultimately, what they're talking about is, in essence, another 70 miles of wall. You know, in a 2,000-mile border that has about 700 miles uh, with some degree of wall and about 12, 1,300 miles of open border. And so the Democrats make it sound like it's the end of the world. The Republicans make it sound like it'll solve the border problem. It's not that. What we do need is an absolutely more secure border. Some of that is with physical wall and fencing. Some of it's with technology. Shifting back to the race for the White House, as you try to make up your mind, there's already a Republican in this race, Bill Weld. Why not get behind him? Uh, you know, we come from different starting points. If you look at my political ideology, I'm a bit to the right of Bill. Bill's a fabulous human being. I've talked to him about this. My view, and I think his view as well, is the more the merrier. We need to have a robust conversation on the Republican side that's not taking place. Um, and so, you know, we come from different starting points, and that's okay. That's why the Republican Party ought to be a big tenant that includes a whole number of different perspectives. Him perhaps a little bit more left of me on social issues, me a little bit more right of him on some other issues. That big tent that Republicans and any political party yeah. wants to have and needs to have to win elections. Right now, a major test within the Republican Party is loyalty to President Trump. You essentially lost your seat in Congress because you were deemed insufficiently supportive of the president. So what happens to the Republican Party moving forward? Uh, presumably, President Trump will be president for one and a half more years or four more, uh, six more years. Right. And, but what happens to the Republican Party it after that? It would be a mistake to go down the, the line that we're going down right now. 
I think it's a huge mistake because, I mean, the president was critical of me because uh, I, 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 I didn't pass the personal litmus test, though I agreed with him on, on probably 90% of the issues. If you actually pull my voting record, probably 90% of concurrence. I love my brothers and sisters. Doesn't mean I agree with them 90% of the time, but that was the case, but that's not enough for him. And this idea of uh, again, uh, being loyal to one person rather than a set of ideals is completely contrary to the American experiment. We are a nation of laws and not men. And there shouldn't be a personal litmus test. There, we ought to have ideological tests. Are, are you a strong Democrat? Are you a strong Republican? Are you a strong Libertarian? But we, we, we need to be very watchful of the idea of, of personal loyalty being what drives us in the political sphere. How many members of Congress or Republicans on Capitol Hill believe as you do, but remain silent? I think there are a bunch of them. I mean, I serve with, with these guys and gals and, uh, and, you know, quietly off the record, they'll say that I think this, I think that. But publicly, they have learned the cost of publicly speaking out and therefore they're very, very quiet. What is your argument then, if you decide to run for president, to all of these Republicans who supported President Trump that, gosh, shouldn't you look at somebody else? How do you make that case when it's so tied up right now in his identity? Well, I go back to my experience over the last 25 years, because I was uh, twice in the U.S. House. I was two terms governor of South Carolina. I've had literally thousands of different conversations with, with, with families across South Carolina, across the Southeast, in different parts of the country, wherein they work uh, religiously to try and balance the family budget. And, and they're really focused on it. And at times it's a real struggle. You talk to the small business person and, and they're incredibly focused on how do I, how do I make payroll this, this week or this month. And they're worried about the fact that we're not having that conversation in Washington, D.C. And we're, you know, at times reacting to the latest crazy tweet and this reaction, that reaction. But we're not focused on some things that are real bread and butter to their lives and improving their lives and making sure that we can continue the American experiment for the kids. And so I, I'm going to make the case, if I decide to do this, that you know we need to bring back front and center economic issues that have been so important for a long time here in New Hampshire and ought to be important in Washington, D.C. You mentioned your home state of South Carolina uh, back in 2015 that suffered a horrifying race-based mass shooting. Lately, the narrative has been Democrats attacking President Trump, saying he's stoking uh, the fear and the hatred that leads to these shootings. Obviously, that one occurred before he was, I think sure. he'd been a candidate for a day, perhaps, right, when that right. happened. Do you agree in any degree or fashion that the president was responsible for stoking hatred in this country? I, I wouldn't go so far as to say stoking hatred, but he, he says a lot of crazy and silly things. Uh, on, on Twitter that are divisive and disruptive uh, and even inflammatory. Um, and and I, I think he needs to tone it down. I mean, I have a lot of people back home say, look, I like what he's doing on judicial appointments. I like what he's trying to do on the wall. But man, he runs his mouth too much on Twitter. He needs to shut up. And, and, and I think it's true because if you think about that person in a business meeting, you think about uh, the, you know, the, 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 the person in your community group who just won't quiet down and who has an opinion on everything all the time, it, it, it becomes a distraction. It becomes a distraction from issues that may be important in that meeting, or in this case, are important as we debate things as an American family 
over where we go next because it's once every four years that we have a chance for a national debate on where we go next as Republicans, Democrats, and ultimately as Americans. Governor Sanford, we thank you for your time on Close Up. Pleasure. Yes, right. sir. Thanks. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. Holding down the fort as a moderate means you're going to get incoming fire from the left and the right. And that's especially true if you're running for president. So far, Michael Bennett has weathered the storm, but he's still looking to gain traction in the 2020 primary. And is our guest this morning, Senator. Thanks for having thanks me. Thanks for being here. We yeah, appreciate thanks it. Thanks for letting me come back. So uh, your uh, friend and former colleague, uh, John Hickenlooper, has dropped out of the race uh, and is hoping to join you in the Senate now. Is that the right move for it? Well, I don't. He's he had to make that decision for himself, and I think he he went out uh, in a really classy way. I'm not surprised that he did it that way. And he, he's thinking over the weekend about what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. So, whatever help I can give him in making that decision, I'll be glad to help him. Do you think we're going to see other candidates reevaluating their candidacies in the weeks to come because of the debate threshold? Um, I think that people will be forced to think about that. I, I, I'm going to have a hard time making the third debate, for example. I don't think that's fatal to my campaign, and I don't think it should be. You know, I think the DNC has used a set of criteria that basically has turned us all into money launderers of one kind or another, unless we were really well known at the beginning of the process. And this is really early to be winnowing a field. You know, I've, I'm only, I've been in the race for, I think, three and a half months. There are people, obviously, that have been in a lot longer than I have. But every week I move up just a little bit, and um, I think I'm getting some traction. Uh, it feels to me like that ought to be reflected in the decision about who's on the debate stage, but I'm not the DNC. So we're just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and having meetings all throughout New Hampshire and Iowa, and uh, it's been fabulous. So there's no perfect system, obviously, right. other than the first in the nation primary, I should say. But uh, you would argue that what's going on right now is unfair. I would argue that it's not, I would argue that more than it's being unfair, it's detrimental to our being able to select a candidate through this process uh, that's in the position to beat Donald Trump. I mean, I really do believe, having now spent months in New Hampshire and Iowa, that my I'm where most people are in these states and where the base of the Democratic Party is. That's a different place than Bernie is, for example. And it's a, it's a place I think we need to be to w- be able to win states like Colorado and Iowa and Maine and Arizona uh, and to have a hope of winning the Senate as well as the presidency. You've got a new book out on Russian interference yeah. in uh, the 2016 election specifically. Uh, and some of this was inspired by an interaction you had here in New Hampshire in a senior center. Tell it's us about absolutely that. true. So this is the book is called Dividing America, and it's about the Russian attack on our democracy in 2016, which President Trump still will not um, say happened. And I was in a senior uh, center here in Manchester a few weeks ago, and a guy said to me very nicely on the way out, but he still, he said, just tell Obama to stop spending the money we should be spending on veterans on refugees. And... Um, or stop him from spending the money on refugees that we should be spending on veterans. That's straight out of the Russian propaganda. That's straight out of what the Russians were doing to our democracy. And I published the book for two reasons. One, I wanted the American people to see what that propaganda looked like. And second, 
We need Mitch McConnell to put the election protection legislation on the floor of the Senate. So if you go to RussiaHackedOurDemocracy.com, um, you can not only read the book for free or download it for yourself, you can send a copy of it to Mitch McConnell to try and inspire him to put the election protection legislation on the floor. I think 2,500 people have already signed up to send a book to Mitch, and I'd like to double that number. And obviously the hashtag Moscow Mitch has now been uh, tagged to the, the leader. He's saying this is a modern-day McCarthyism, adding another layer of, of Russian angle here. What do you think about that? I, I, I don't even understand what he means by that. What's ridiculous is that anybody who calls himself a leader, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican, won't put legislation, bipartisan legislation on the floor to protect our elections. I'm on the Intelligence Committee. We put out a report three, three weeks ago or so saying this was really serious what the Russians did. And in fact, they're still doing it. The Mueller report says they're still doing it. And there's only one person that can put that stuff on the floor. It's Mitch McConnell. But, you know, he's too busy working with Donald Trump to rack up the biggest debt that we've ever had on our balance sheet. You know, he and Trump, these guys ran for office saying they were going to be fiscally responsible. And they have been the least fiscally responsible people that, you know, they're the least fiscally responsible living politicians in America. And I don't think they should be able to get away with that. And I don't think he should be able to get away with not responding to what, you know, a bipartisan group of senators want to do to protect this country. You had one of your strongest moments in the most recent debate on the issue of education, talking about the inequalities in the system. So under a Bennett administration, would we see the Department of Education, obviously funding being a big part of that, yeah. would you seek more control, though, over some of these failing schools and districts in order to make sure that those dollars are spent? I absolutely not. I would not seek more control. I was a school superintendent. I, was, I, I ran a large urban school district with a billion dollar budget and 95,000 kids. And the last thing I think we need is people in Washington telling us how we should run our schools. But we have a fundamental problem in America, which is that our education system is reinforcing the income inequality that we have. And I'd like to be a president that says, I think that together, working with governors and school superintendents and mayors, we can make our system of education once again the greatest in the world. And it used to be that way. There was a time when education was the wind at our back after World War II. Today, as I say, it is a headwind. It's reinforcing the inequality that we have. I'll just give you one example. You know, we, for, for kids in our country that are graduating from high school and not going to college, um, which is 70% of the kids in America, their only choice is to get a minimum wage job. I think that we should be pushing ourselves so that when you are graduating with a high school diploma, what that means is that you can earn a living wage, not just the minimum wage. And I know we can do that. I know how to do that. And that would transform the lives of millions of Americans and it would transform the American economy. That's just one aspect of what we need to do, but it's really important. On health care, you're not on board with Medicare for all. And it's evolved here that uh, when you make your points on those issues, some of the candidates who are in favor of Medicare for all, all are saying, oh, those are just Republican talking points. Yeah. Got to admit, you know, hearing President Trump at the rally in Manchester, some of the points he was making about spending uh, were similar. So how do you navigate a situation in which you're being tagged as a Republican with yeah, Republican talking points? It doesn't make them Republican talking points to repeat Bernie Sanders' own talking points. Bernie said famously during the debate, 
about Medicare for all, I wrote the damn bill, and he did, just like I wrote the damn bill on, on, on the public option, which I think, and it's been great to see candidates like Mayor Pete and Joe Biden decide that the public option is where they want to land, because I think they see the political peril in supporting Bernie's ideological approach to this, which requires us, not Republican talking points, Bernie's talking points, makes all private insurance illegal except for what he calls cosmetic insurance, which is plastic surgery insurance, and puts a $33 trillion tax on the American people to pay for it. You know, this is why in Vermont, they tried to pass single-payer health care there, and it failed, because once people were, knew what the taxes would be, they said, we're not going to do it. Just to give you a sense of the scale of what Bernie's talking about, and again, I'm not quoting Donald Trump, I'm quoting Bernie. The, the scale of what he's talking about, it's $33 trillion over the next 10 years, w once we pass it, in new taxes. That is 70% of the total taxes the federal government's going to collect for the next 10 years. I don't think the American people are prepared to increase their taxes by 70% for the privilege of making private insurance illegal in this country. I think what they want is to have an option for themselves and for their families that will create competition and drive down costs, and that's what Medicare X is, and, I, and my travels around Iowa and New Hampshire make it crystal clear to me that that's what people are looking for, not Bernie's plan. Do you believe that President Trump will be a lot harder to defeat in 2020 than most Democrats think? I do believe he will be harder to defeat than most Democrats think. And I'm worried that, you know, we can't be complacent and we can't disqualify ourselves. I think we lost to Donald Trump, a man who's manifestly unqualified for the job of president, you know, because people were so fed up with Washington, D.C., that they were sent, willing to send a reality TV star there because they figured we couldn't do any worse. Now we know we can do worse. The guy said he'd pay off the debt. He's driven up the deficit. The guy still hasn't come up with a health, the guy still hasn't come up with a health care plan. And, um, and two years into his presidency, he's saying, well, I'll give it to you next time after I get reelected. And he's take, literally taken insurance away from millions of Americans. We've never had an American president take insurance away from millions of Americans. Senator Bennett, we thank you for your time. Thanks for Hope having to see you me. back here next Good time. We you. appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.